you'll take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and tonight verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And I'm going to focus uh, verse 18, 19, and 22. So we'll read verses 18 through 25 of Hebrews chapter 13. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. Now these verses, they form the, the conclusion to this great and wonderful letter that we have considered together and are still considering together. But I want you to notice what uh, immediately is interesting is the use of the first person singular, I. So the writer is referring to himself. You'll notice he says, uh, verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly that I may be restored to you. So he is referring to himself and the only other occasion that he makes use of the pronoun uh, in reference, of course, to himself is back in chapter 11, the great chapter on the faith in verse 32 when he says, And what more shall I say? And he says, For time would fail to tell me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. What more can I or shall I say? And that use of me uh, that we find is the only use of me in the epistle uh, as we find it uh, uh, in these passages before us, or that use of the pronoun, I should say. So it seems to me that on the surface of things, this is a writer throughout the whole letter who is most reticent to speak about himself. He doesn't say much about himself. And as we know, of course, this letter is an anonymous letter. We don't know who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. There have been numerous suggestions that have been made, and many of them, of course, with great speculation, all seeking with whatever reasons they have to justify whoever they choose as the author of this great epistle. The fact, of course, that there is an absolute absence and total silence uh, of the solid testimony of identifying who this uh, person is, whether it's internally within the text or externally from other sources, simply means that it is not possible for us to say with any degree of certainty that we know who the author of Hebrews is. That causes some Christians problems. How come we don't know? I mean, look at Paul or James or John or Peter or Matthew or Mark. We know who they are. They identify themselves. Uh, certainly uh, most of them do, and we derive from other sources the, the, the identity of authors. But here... 
there is absolutely really no idea or suggestion that is given to us as to whether we could say that is written or this is written by such and such. The only thing that we can say to the absence of knowing who the author is, is that is exactly or precisely as God meant it to be. God meant it to be uh, anonymous or unknown. Now let me just give you some, some, a reminder of some of the names of those who have been associated with the epistle to the Hebrews. There is Clement of Rome who lived at the end of the first century. So around 95, 96 AD, Clement of Rome was a very important Christian in the first century. He wrote a letter from Rome to the Corinthians, uh, called the letter of Clement of Rome to the Corinthians. And what, Paul, uh, sorry, what Clement does in his letter is, to the Corinthians is to identify the Apostle Paul as the author of our first Corinthians, as we find it in our Bibles. So he just tells us what, what we know from 1 uh, Corinthians. So that is an important source about 1 Corinthians from Clement of Rome, some 30 years or 40 years down the line, identifying, agreeing, simply saying that Paul was the author of 1 Corinthians. And Clement himself can hardly have written this great letter because he's only at the end of the first century and this would have been written at least 30, uh, 35 years previously. But what's also interesting with Clement is Clement says nothing about Paul. He says many things about Paul, but he says nothing about Paul as being the author of this letter to the Hebrews. And I would think if it was well known that if Paul wrote Hebrews, then Clement of Rome would perhaps given some indication of that. But Clement says nothing. Paul, of course, has been a great contender himself in the minds of people, right, has been the author. Uh, because right here in this very chapter, if you look at verses 22 through 25, he, he talks about, you should know that our brother Timothy is about to be released. And then he talks about all these greetings. Greet all your leaders and all your saints. He knows them. Those who come from Italy, from Rome, and so on, they send you greetings. And Paul would be familiar with those individuals, certainly with Timothy. So many have felt that, that because the writer to the Hebrews mentions Timothy and uses this form of greeting the saints, these Hebrews, that therefore this must be Paul. But Paul's authorship is highly doubtful for one simple reason, and I want to show you that if you go back to chapter 2 of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, so if anybody asks you who is the author of Hebrews, you can say it's not Paul, based on this verse. So verse, verse 3, what a, this is the first warning passage in Hebrews, and in verse 3, how shall we, we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So notice the author includes himself with the Hebrews. It was declared at first, he says, by the Lord, and it was attested to us, meaning himself and the Hebrews, by those who heard, meaning the apostles, which was also confirmed, he says, in the next verse, by signs and wonders and miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So it would appear from Hebrews chapter 2 that the author to the Hebrews has derived his message from the apostles, those who heard, and saw signs and wonders, who then in turn, those apostles, disciples, received their message directly from the Lord. So this is like a third-hand receiving of the word from those who actually heard the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrew. So Paul, I think, is excluded 
uh, from that category at all. Some have suggested Dr. Luke, that he's a great author that uh, we know about historically. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. And he has been suggested, but I think that's very unlikely because Luke was a Gentile. And this epistle is obviously written, isn't it, by someone with a massive understanding, a deep understanding and comprehension of the Old Testament Levitical system. Certainly the writer is very familiar with with what happened in the Old Testament and so on, with the tabernacle and the sacrifices and all of those things. Two other candidates have been suggested, like Barnabas and Apollos. Uh, Both, of course, are Hebrews or Jewish. Barnabas is a Levite. That's a very powerful argument because of the Levitical knowledge that the author conveys. Apollos, as we know, was said to be mighty in the Scriptures. What Scriptures were those? The Old Testament Scriptures. So those names have been put forward. And perhaps out of all of them, Barnabas conveys the strongest argument uh, to be the author. Some have suggested Priscilla, the wife of Aquila, But uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, the use of I, what more shall I say, is in the masculine. So that would exclude Priscilla, because if it was Priscilla, it would have, or woman, it would have been in the feminine. So Priscilla can be ruled out, uh, although I have the, am of the opinion that Priscilla herself would have had an extensive knowledge, because she and Aquila were the ones who taught Apollos the deeper things. So, What can we say to these things? There's no need, is there, to pursue, I think, any understanding or identification of this man who now says, uh, in verse 19, I urge you that I may be restored. Verse 22, I appeal to you, and so on. So we should take note of those statements that he makes. For instance, look at verse 18, pray for us. He says, pray for me and others, the author and others, that we, notice, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Pray for us. Verse 19, I urge you that I may be restored to you. I. Verse 22, I appeal to you. My word of encouragement, he says, or my word of exhortation. He says, I have written to you briefly. And then in verse 23, you should know that Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. And all of those References, I think, are very significant and very important at the end of this letter because they are telling us that this author, this writer to the Hebrews, is very well known to the Hebrews. They know this man. They know this author. They know who is writing to them. But for you and for me, we do not know who the author is of Hebrews. And frankly, that has been sufficient for Christians for 2,000 years And I think it ought to be sufficient for you and for me tonight. Now, the writer to the Hebrews is not just known by them, you know, like uh, from a distance or by reputation. Uh, Paul has a reputation in the ancient world. He had never been to Rome, and yet he is familiar with the Romans, it would appear, from the letter that he writes to them. But he has not seen them face to face. He desires to come and to see them. And so they know him by reputation. And so it is with us, we know people by reputation, we never have seen them, but we may know a lot of things about them, and so on. But it's not the case with this letter, I believe. 
It is not just that they, they recognize, well, this is a man who knows his Old Testament, and because we are Hebrews, we recognize what he is saying, and yes, we have heard about this man by reputation, so we know him in that sense. No, I think it's much deeper and much more personal than that. So he's not just known by these Hebrews. But you'll notice in these verses here, 18 through 25, that he is appealing to some relationship that seems to exist between them. It's a very good relationship, it would appear, a very warm relationship that exists. For instance, notice in verse 18, he urges them and he says, pray, he says, for us. Pray for us. Now often I hear people say to me or to among ourselves, pray for me, pray for me. I mean, that's a wonderful thing to ask someone, right? Why would you ask someone to pray for you? You know them. You're confident that they know God. And you, I think by asking someone uh, or saying to them, I also wish to know the Lord better, or these are my problems, these are my difficulties, so please can you pray for me, can you take my case to the Lord yourself? That's a good thing to do. And we hear it often, don't we? We use it ourselves. This is what the writer does. He says, pray, pray for us, not just himself, but he and others who are with him. And the reason why he wants them to pray for him, look at the end of verse 19. He says, in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Notice that word, restored to you sooner. Restored to you. And that, of course, means to be reunited with them. So there's no question. I think that this author, this writer to the Hebrews, is well known to these people to whom he is writing. They know him and he knows them. And you'll notice at the end of verse 19 the word sooner, that I may be restored to you sooner means the word just simply means to be quickly or in the near future. So pray that in the near future I may be restored to you, I may be reunited with you. And I think this is very instructive for us as Christians, very instructive for us as the people of God, because it tells us, I think very strongly, that Christian affection, Christian love, is not diminished by dif distance, and it is not lessened by difficulties. And so, you can go anywhere in the world, by the way, and if you desire to meet with God's people anywhere in the world, you could go and meet with them, and you would find that there is a kinship between you which is centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will recognize it, they will recognize it in you. And this is what we understand. So Christian affection is not affected by how far we are apart from each other. It is not diminished in any way by distance, nor is it diminished by the difficulties that we experience in life. And he expresses, doesn't he, this man, a deep desire and a deep longing to be with them again. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, so that I may be restored to you quickly, that I may be with you again in a very short time. So he's expressing this longing that he has to be with them again, because perhaps, of course, he has been apart from them. I want to be restored to you. I want to be reunited with you, which implies that he has, for some time, don't know how long, he has not been among them. Maybe many miles away, maybe in another location, maybe in a distant country in the Roman Empire, who knows? It also, I think, probably means that there is this affection that exists in the relationship between the author and the recipients of, he, of this epistle to the Hebrews, but that, not only that, but that he, the author himself, was very influential among them. They had respect for him. Uh, he's perhaps one of their teachers, one of their leaders. Certainly, this letter 
is just massively filled with doctrine that he supports numerously with Old Testament quotations and with many Old Testament allusions. The book of Revelation, by the way, is similar to that. It's filled with the Old Testament scripture and it's filled with allusions, sometimes just a few words that come out of the Old Testament, which tells you that John, the apostle himself, is very familiar with the Old Testament. Like this writer to the Hebrews, he's very familiar, he's saturated with the Old Testament scriptures. This is one of the great benefits to the Christian, I think, also to be, to be knowledgeable of the Old Testament scriptures. And not just knowledgeable of the verses themselves, but the backgrounds, the historical backgrounds, the geographical uh, situations that we find the people of Israel encountering and living in, knowing something a little bit about the ancient world and its rulers, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians, and so on and so forth. It's important to know that. But it's important to know that the Old Testament tells us just simply one thing ultimately, that Jesus is coming. And that Jesus, when He comes, is going to lay down His life as a sacrifice for us, give Himself in our place, and that the, all the promises of God are in Jesus and find their fulfillment in Him and by Him. I think the writer to the Hebrews knows that, and that's what he communicates in this letter. I mean, he's a man who's so thoroughly versed, isn't he, in the Old Testament, and his knowledge and his understanding of the New Covenant itself from Jeremiah 31, which he explains to us in chapter 8 and chapter 10 of Hebrews, is profoundly deep and so rich in its understanding, or perhaps I should say so rich in its application. Here is a man who is uh, not just having knowledge of theology and doctrine from the Old Testament, or of knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, but he knows how to apply that knowledge of the Old Testament to Jesus in the New Covenant, which is of benefit, of course, for us being under the new covenant as well. So he constantly makes connection from the Old Testament to the new in explaining what it now means. And his application in the new covenant and the new testament is in relation to the old and I think that's what that comparison is what makes this epistle so uh, endearing to us and so rich a treasure for us to enjoy. In fact, I can testify quite simply that my my spiritual life has been revolutionized by my study of Hebrews. I began this preaching series on Hebrews on January, I think it was the 4th or something, in 2015. That's seven years ago now. So for more than seven years, I've lived week after week after week with this epistle to the Hebrews. And I can tell you that my own spiritual life is has been energized and revolutionized. My understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament richly enhanced and deepened because there's nothing, frankly, brothers and sisters, nothing quite like preaching through an epistle like this to open your eyes and to open your minds and your hearts to the depths of Holy Scripture. So I recognize in one sense I have the advantage of you because I'm able to spend hours and time uh, investigating and thinking about these things. But it is not so much that I'm interested, as you, should, as you know, I think, in just having a head filled with an understanding. I wish my heart to be totally changed by what I learn, by what I read, because in the communication of it, I desire that that would be communicated as well. One of the tragedies, I think, of modern preaching is that it is a communication of the personality today. In fact, the personality should be nothing in the pulpit what should be central to come out of the pulpit is the content, 
is the preaching content itself. So that you do not go away with an idea about the preacher, but rather you go away with an idea about the preaching, about what I've heard, what I've learned from the Word of God. And that, of course, is my prayer, that Russ Atmel would just be swept under the carpet and that Christ himself would manifest himself in the Word to all of us as I desire for my own self in studying any passage, any book in the Bible. So, the effect of the Bible on your personal life, I can testify from my own experience, is a very, very important and a very, very wonderful thing. So, we should learn how to read our Bibles, and we should take the time to read our Bibles, exercise care in reading our Bibles, because God has given it to us for our entire lives. And if God should spare you and give you a long life, then what better way to spend your time learning constantly from His Word, because in that way you draw nearer to Him in relationship to Him. And as I've said, I think a number of times, I certainly am an advocate of feeling what I believe. And I don't mean in some extraordinary experience, whatever, that's outside of my senses. Or No, I think to feel the truth is to know the power of the truth. To, to sense that, that God is communicating something to me uh, in this word that I'm reading that is vital to my Christian experience. To feel it, to be alive in it, to be wrapped up in it. And I think that's the essence ultimately of preaching in the Word. It's not just a going through a preparation or a, a series of points or notes, but, but instead it is the feeling of what is believed that must be communicated because that's where the truth is. It's living, it's real, it's rich, so that you feel it and that I feel it. That's what I think this man is like. He feels the Old Testament. He senses the wonder in the Old Testament. And then he finds that it is totally eclipsed by the new. And that blows him away. And that's what he's communicating. Because these Hebrews are playing with the idea of going back to the old, the lesser. And he doesn't want them to do that because there's so much more for them in uh, the new covenant. How can any of us not be moved to tears by the reading of Scripture. If you've never had that experience, then read it again and again and again. Because there's nothing quite like being absolutely moved, broken, just from the plain, simple reading of your Bible. Knowing that God is speaking not to others at that moment, but speaking to you directly. That's why it's important to come to the Bible Seeking God first, not just to mechanically read it, matter-of-factly read it, coldly, scientifically read it, but to read it with depth. What does it mean? What does God say? What is He saying to me? And of course, to be reduced to tears is one thing, but at the same time to be filled with unspeakable joy or inexpressible joy, as Peter himself says, and so on. So we must never come to the Word of God, must never listen to the Word of God when it is preached in just a mechanical uh, kind of way. Instead, let us know always that whenever God's Word is opened, whether privately by ourselves or publicly like this, that the Lord is speaking to us. The Lord is speaking. And like Samuel, the little boy in Shiloh's tent, that when God spoke, he heard his name and he responded, thinking Eli had called him. Here am I. You called me. 
I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Came a second time. Back to Eli he went. You called me. Here I am. I did not call you. Go back and lie down. And the third time when God had called Samuel, he went to Eli and says, You did call me. Eli then knew. How slow Eli was, right? They, Eli then knew it was Yahweh. It was God. You lie down, Samuel. And when he speaks to you again, then say to him, Here am I, your servant is listening. Isn't that what God means for us when we open his word? To listen. To hear. To listen to the word of God. That's what I think this writer to the Hebrews has been doing for a long time. He's been just studying. He's a Levite, I think. If he's Barnabas, then he certainly is that. He knows the Old Testament, of course, because he's Levitical. It gives him an advantage, but he's immersing himself. He's familiar with all that goes on in the Old Testament system. And then, of course, having come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees how everything in Jesus is pictured in the old, and the old fades away, and Christ is the reality, and so on. Anybody who desires that others pray for them Right? Pray for us, he says, verse 18. Anybody who desires that others pray for them, desire that because they want God's will to be done, first of all, in their life. If I ask you to pray for me, it's because I want God's will to be done. That's just a given, right? That ought to be the given. In fact, all prayer is like that. When we pray and ask God, we know that we, we are asking that God's will be done first and foremost. If I decide to go to another town and I want to open up another business there, James says, then you better seek that that's the Lord's will first. If the Lord wills, we will do this and we will do that and we will live and so on. So when you desire others to pray for you, let it be because you desire God's will to be done. That's what he desires, this author, the writer to the Hebrews. But it sure is, isn't it, a deep reflection of his relationship with them that he can say to all of them, pray for us. Pray for me and others with me. A relationship of deep affection. By the way, a relationship that is obviously reciprocal based on how he talks about them and himself. And so the Hebrews themselves can be assured that this man is also praying for them when he asks them to pray for us. Now I think this would hardly be the case, by the way, if the Hebrews have done the very thing that he is urging them not to do, that is to fall away from the faith. If they've fallen away, if they've abandoned the faith, if they've given up the faith, that they say they believed and have gone back to Judaism, then it would hardly be the case that he would say to them, pray for us. In fact, the epistle to the Hebrews would be far more intense. So what he is doing is saying, you are in danger of thinking about going back. You're not there yet. Do not go there. And he writes all these warning passages to prevent them. So it's hardly going to be the case that he would pray for them and they would pray for him if it was the case that they had abandoned, if they had fallen away, as chapter 6 speaks of. No, this epistle is written primarily to encourage these Christians in their faith. And the writer has urged them, right, to not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, chapter 10, verse 35. He urges them to not shrink back and so be destroyed, but to have faith and therefore to persevere and preserve your souls, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39. That is why he has given them in this epistle and he has given you and me the great chapter of chapter 11. 
And you know, the more I've thought about Hebrews, that chapter 11 is just right there at the right time to draw us into the personalities of the Old Testament with all of their, their foibles and all of their weaknesses and all of their failures and all of their sins to show us that it is possible for us in this day and age which is so terrible in so many respects uh, that we can have the same kind of faith that we can be assured and have conviction of the things we hope for and the things we believe in things that are not seen things that we cannot comprehend but we believe them because God has revealed them to us so that the writer gives that great chapter puts it in the, the right place before he transitions into chapter 12 and chapter 13, which is about concluding what he began in chapter 11, the whole idea of perseverance by faith, so that every Christian now, 2,000 years later, as we find ourselves, will also persevere to the end by faith. Same, this is what he's doing. This is why he's given them this chapter, so that they might learn about others, and they certainly would have known about Enoch and Noah, and Abel, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. They're Hebrews, so they're very familiar with those Old Testament characters. This is why you believe, I believe, and I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Because it's not just a faith for today that does nothing, but that is real and living and that lasts and will take you to the end. Because it's belief still in the same Lord Jesus Christ whether it's today or 10 years from now or 20 years from now. And frankly, it is, as we know from the Bible, a God-given faith and repentance, a God-enabled faith and repentance, first of all in our justification and then in our daily walk, in our sanctification till our glorification comes upon us. In other words, what a good Christian man and brother and teacher, this writer to the Hebrews is, to this congregation of Hebrews, wherever they might find themselves. What a good, good man he is to them. What a good teacher is to them. You see what he says in verse 18. He says, uh, pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I want to make sure that my own life is honorable, he says, in all things. And he feels sure that he is in saying that. He says, I am less. Verse 18, he says, we are sure that we have a clear conscience. It takes something to be able to say that you have a clear conscience and put in your life before other people. He has spoken very directly to them. He has spoken very plainly to them, very strongly to them, because he sees that they are spiritually threatened to abandon their confession and profession in the Lord Jesus Christ and to take up their old Judaism with all of its beautiful things. And so he warns them to give heed over and over again and to pay attention. And this is one of the things I admire so much about the author to the Hebrews. I, I admire plain speaking. I admire plain speaking that is based upon Scripture. So lacking today. It's true we don't want to offend others. Uh, that, I think, is, is true. Nobody wants to offend others, but we do know that the gospel does offend others, doesn't it? And somewhere down the line, sooner or later, you may something, say something based on the gospel that might offend family members, loved ones, work colleagues, whoever it might be. But this writer, because he loves these Hebrews so much, he has spoken to them of their dangers very directly. So that they get the picture. That's why you have all these warning passages. 
So that they bring to mind immediately the danger of neglecting their great salvation. So this is the genuine Christian. He's not communicating this man a personal agenda. He has no personal agenda. In fact, there's no place for that among any Christian personal agenda. That's what the cults do, right? They have agendas. That's what the deceived and the deceivers do. That's what the speculators do and so on. No, there's no hostility here. There is admonition, it's true, there is exhortation, but it comes from a warm heart of a relationship that exists between them both. And one of the things about biblical admonition, which you find in the epistle to the Hebrews, it always aims to restore. It always aims to convince. It always aims to encourage from the standpoint of having a deep concern, which he does for them. I mean, this is what you find in the life of the Apostle Paul, isn't it? He has a, an overwhelming sense of anxiety for the churches every day of his life. He's concerned. He cares for them. He loves them. And how important it is, dear brothers and sisters, to have a clear conscience. Like he says here, pray for us for we are sure we have a clear conscience. He believes his motives are right. He believes his manners and his methods in approaching them and the things that he says. He believes that they're right. That's why I think, based on the fact that he believes he's right, has a clear conscience, he can say to them with absolute confidence, pray for me. Pray for us. Pray for us. He recognizes that any reunion with them, any restoration back to them, is only dependent upon the will of God and is dependent upon their prayers. Because isn't the will of God done when we ask God to accomplish His will? Doesn't God ask us to pray according to His will? And whatever you ask in my name, according to my will, I will do it. And with that confidence we pray and believe that God will hear us. And notice in verse 19 what he says. He says, that I may be restored to you the sooner. But will you notice he says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this. To do what? To pray. To pray. I urge you the more earnestly, and I can supply it here, to pray for us in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Notice earnest prayer, right? Earnest prayer. Pray more earnestly, he says. Which tells you, you can pray in one way, but there's another way. You can pray more earnestly, he says. And, in fact, the more earnestly implies you can pray earnestly, but you can pray more earnestly. And isn't our prayer life to be like that? Isn't, shouldn't prayer be earnest before God? Because that conveys the idea that I actually do believe what I'm asking God. So there's an earnestness about it. In fact, he uses this adverb here, uh, perisoteros, which means more abundantly. Keep on praying. Pray more and more and more for us. Has the idea of to an unusual degree, beyond what is expected, beyond what is normal, to a greater degree, in a fuller measure. So when I think about prayer, right, when you think about prayer, prayer is, is perhaps... You could say it's a state of being. This is what I do. I pray. And there I am in my prayer, in my state of being. But earnest prayer is going beyond that which is ordinary. There are many ways you can uh, ask God earnestly for things. You really do feel it, believe it, enter into it, want it, desire it more and more. Uh, in fact, I, I think the Apostle Paul was like that himself. That in his prayer life, he is not just content with 
the mechanics of prayer. It's not just content with saying whatever we should say every day in our prayers to God, but he wants something deeper. He wants something personal. He wants a relationship between God and himself to be real and to be deep. And that's what this man is saying. He said, I want you to pray like that for us. Pray like that for me. That's what our prayer lives in praying for others, by the way, we should pray more earnestly. Because doesn't more earnest prayer, in one sense, reflect a deep relationship that exists between ourselves? He's confident, this man, that they can pray. That's why he asks them in this way. John Owen says that prayer, in this way, argues a confidence in their faith and mutual love. In other words, this man knows that they believe. This man knows that they love him as he loves them. And so he can ask them to pray more earnestly for them that they might be back together again and enjoy fellowship and harmony between themselves. So it argues for confidence in their faith. He believes that they believe. And dear brothers and sisters, shouldn't our mutual prayers for each other be like that? Earnest? fervent, deep, warm, rich, right? I mean, his desire, he says, is to act honorably in all things, he says in verse 18, desiring to act honorably in all things. And we so desperately need help in our Christian lives and our Christian walk to know that someone, others are praying for us is a big help, isn't it? It's so helpful to me. People tell me all the time, I'm praying for you. It's such a, such a blessing, you know. And that's what we should be like with each other. So his desire is to act honorably in all things so that he might continue to be in the same way with them and they with him as they know him to be. Now, having said these things, I don't know if this writer, this man, was actually reunited with the Hebrews. I don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us. This is something in the future. Pray for us that we might be reunited or restored to you. So I don't know if that actually took place. But I like to think, right, that God actually blessed and honored their prayers on His behalf. Or to put it like the King James puts it so beautifully, right, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Effectual fervent prayer, earnest prayer, avails much. You will notice his further appeal to them. Look at verse 22. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to bear with my brief, my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. That word, I appeal to you, is the same word back in verse 19. I urge you the more earnestly to do this. Same word, I appeal to you, I beseech you, I urge you. And the word bear with, when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with me, that's a command. It's the word for endure. He means... I want you to listen to my words. I appeal to you, I urge you, brothers, to bear with my word of exhortation. So he's saying this to them, to bear with this, because he has written to them. He has written what is vital and necessary for their spiritual lives and their spiritual well-being, and he calls it my word of exhortation. It's the same word, the word exhortation, for comfort. My word of comfort. My word of consolation. Now why should... They do that. Why should they do that? Why should they bear, put up with, endure his word of exhortation? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he has presented the superiority of the gospel over the law. Grace over works. 
He has presented the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over all these others that he talks about, over angels, over Moses, over Joshua, over Aaron, all Jesus superior to all of them. He has presented the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus and the intercession of Jesus to the Old Testament sacrifices and the intercession by the high priests. So the comparison between Jesus and the entire worship system of the Old Testament, it's Jesus and nothing else. He is the only one. He is supreme, superior. To go back to such a system, he says, would be apostasy. Fall away. Don't do it, he says, right? Listen to my, my warnings. Bear with my word of exhortation to you. So you can avoid the dangers if you listen, he says to them, with what I am telling you. You can, you can keep yourselves. And notice he calls it, I have written to you briefly. Now, here are 13 chapters of whew, so much theology, and he calls it a brief word. I mean, can you imagine a long letter, right? I've written to you briefly. Briefly, he says. But yet it's so sound, so solid, so rich in this writing. He gives the impression, doesn't he, there's more to come. That when I see you, when I'm restored to you, I've got so much to tell you. I've just scratched the surface, my brief word of exhortation, he says. I've just given you a little homily, as it were. He says, there's more to come. And now, dear brothers and sisters, when we get to heaven, we shall find out so much more. There's so much I wish to know, desire to know, know that I will never know on earth, but I will know, Lord willing, in glory. So much of that that we desire, right? But I'm not really worried about heaven, because heaven will reveal all that to me. In the meantime, the writer says, put up with, bear with my exhortations to you, he says. Bear up with this brief word. So what shall we do then, ourselves, tonight? Number one, let us pray more earnestly for each other. Right? Let us pray diligently. Let us pray faithfully. Let us pray fervently. I, I don't know what it takes to help us do that. Make a list. Put people's names down. Put things down on a piece of, on, in, a, in a little notebook. That's your prayer Bible or prayer diary, I should say. Your prayer journal. Write those things down and go back to them. Go back to them. Go back to them. Because how will you remember these things? I mean, we're so lacking in discipline, generally speaking, right? We need help. I need help. I need constant reminder. If Chris sends me to the grocery store, unless there's a list, forget it. It's not happening. Sure, guaranteed, I'll come back and have forgotten the very essential thing. No, we need help. I find that with my spiritual life as well. Let us pray more faithfully for each other. Secondly, let us pray for our mutual edification. You and me and me and you. Let us pray for our constant consolation, our constant comfort. Let us pray for continual motivation. Let us pray for a shared benefit between ourselves in spiritual matters, centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think thirdly, above all, let us believe that God hears our prayers. Let us truly believe, have faith that the Lord hears our prayers and not only that, but he is able to accomplish what we pray for and ask him.
So I close with Mr. Spurgeon. He says, we should begin to pray before we even kneel down. And we should not cease to pray when we rise up. Let your prayer, like Paul says, be always be unceasing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these brief words from the epistle to the Hebrews, which are so filled with meaning. And help us to appreciate this writer and all that he has given to the Hebrew Christian so long ago and is of such a benefit to us in our own time. Thank you, Father, for this word of exhortation. Help us to pray more for one another. Help us to act in a good conscience and to act honorably in all things. Help us to listen to your word and pay attention, give heed to your word, to heed the warnings, the dangers that are all around us. We need to pray more for each other. So help us to do that, we pray. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the Lord's day. and Thank you for the wonder and the beauty of your word. Bless all of your word to us. May it help us this week as we go into work days tomorrow and throughout the week. May we take the, the things that we've heard and learned and keep them with us and think about them and meditate on them so that we are sustained throughout this week until you bring us again as your people to gather together to hear your word and to worship. So we commit this week to you. Go before us. Undertake for all of us and lead us in your ways, we pray. We ask that you would bless each one of us. And so we commit ourselves to you now and thank you for this day, for your mercy and for your grace upon us. And thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd of the sheep, who laid down his life for us. Thank you, Father, for your Son. Thank you for the cross. And thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead and is exalted and seated at your right hand as our great high priest to ever live to intercede on our behalf because he has made atonement for our sins. So give us confidence, give us boldness to draw near and to approach you and to pray and to ask so many things of you. You are gracious and you are good and we love you, our gracious God. Thank you for today. Thank you for one another. We commend ourselves to you now and ask your blessing upon us. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.